This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning online. Uh, before I begin this talk, I, I just wanted to acknowledge everybody's effort over the last four days. feels longer. <laughs> Actually, also in the, of course, the lead-up to Seshin, which requires a lot of organization and work, <laughs> requires work. And to say that uh, those of you, most of the people in this room who are sitting most of the retreat, carry the retreat for everyone, the people who can only come and go. There are some people who are here for a couple of days, or some people who are here for half a day, and sometimes aren't here for the half a day. <laughs> and it creates various challenges for everyone else. So I know a lot of you are doing extra dishes, extra serving, extra dough-oning, <laughs> uh, and doing things you've never done before. But, uh, you know, Sashin is something that we co-create, and it depends on all of us. But it's particularly challenging in a lay-centered temple when people have all these obligations. So thank you for showing up, as you have been, all of you. And uh, for those who are leaving us soon or can't be here all the time, your effort and presence is also deeply, deeply appreciated. It takes everyone. So, again, thank you so much. So... Day four, third talk, Zazen Yojinki. I want to return to this phrase that we've heard from Kazan. It's a variation on a very standard teaching about doing, doing things. Uh, the phrase that I was thinking about is putting aside all concerns, shed all attachments, shed all attachments do nothing at all, or do nothing at all. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little different emphasis in English, depending on how you say it. Do nothing at all, do nothing at all. I'm going to quote Cohen Franz uh, again. Um, this is what he says about this, and I think it helps uh, a little bit to resolve some of the questions that we have around that question and then how do we do things? We do things. So how do we not do doing things? Cohen says, do nothing at all doesn't mean don't respond. It doesn't mean be passive. It doesn't mean don't try to fix something that's wrong. Right? That, that sounds like it flies in the face of, of some teachings which are no fixing, right? <laughs> don't try to change things. I'll continue with what he says. He says, we only fix things that are wrong. Fix them, and that's his emphasis, fix them in the future. Things don't get fixed. Right? When we think, I have to fix this, right? in that moment, there's a separation between what is and your thought that I've got to change it or fix it. He says, things become the things that they are. And we kind of steer them towards eventually being the thing that they are. 
In this moment, nothing gets fixed. It's impossible, because for something to be fixed in this moment is for this moment not to be this moment. In this moment, you have what's offered, and that's all. Shall I repeat any of this? <laughs> A little bit, maybe? All right, maybe just part of it. He says, things become the things that they are. Right, so things are always becoming. In fact, if you try to find the present moment, it's extremely elusive. As soon as you think now, it's past. You think you see it coming, <laughs> it's in the future, you notice it, and it's gone. Right? And there are various teachings about how infinitely small, how impossible it is, really, to grasp or to notice or to be in this present moment. Very, very difficult. So in this moment, nothing gets fixed. It's impossible, because for something to be fixed in this moment is for this moment not to be this moment. Right? You think, I've got to fix this, you've separated from what's right in front of you. In this moment, you have what's offered. So how many times have we heard this? Accept what's offered, right? Whether it's a food that we don't particularly like or a sutra we are really tired of chanting, right? <laughs> or a job that we've been asked to do again, right? It's just this present moment. And in this moment, that's what you have, what's, what the moment is offering. This is profoundly about the present moment and our ideas about what that is. And I think um, Cohen is pointing us away from our ideas to the moment itself and to the suchness of the moment that we call now, right? And I think this is a pretty uh, nifty insight. So let's go back to Kazan. Now he's going to really mess with us. <laughs> yeah, continue to mess with us. Zazen, he says, is not based upon teaching. Teaching, practice, or realization. Right? Zazen is not based upon teaching, practice, or realization, he says. Instead, these three aspects are all contained within it. Right? So, this is a very typical um, expression in Chan, or Zen. Zazen contains everything. That's what Kazan is saying. It does not depend on anything outside because nothing is outside zazen and nothing is really truly before or after if we are doing zazen. So Kazan's words again, measuring realization is based upon some notion of enlightenment. He says, this is not the essence of zazen, to measure your zazen against some idea of enlightenment. Practice base is based upon strenuous application. This is an idea. He says, that is not the essence of zazen. Teaching is based upon freeing from evil and cultivating good. Right? He says, that's not the essence of zazen. <laughs> right? Precepts. He says, teaching is found in Zen, but it is not the usual teaching. Rather, it is a direct pointing, just expressing the way, speaking with the whole body. Such words are without sentences or clauses. Where views end and concept is exhausted, that's a good word for it, 
where views end and concept is exhausted, the one word pervades the ten directions without setting up so much as a single hair. This is the true teaching of the Buddhas and awakened ancestors. So this is goes straight back to Bodhidharma, the possibly mythological uh, first patriarch or ancestor of Zen, the Indian monk that I quoted two days ago, and I'll quote again <laughs> in a few minutes. Right? The one word pervades the ten directions without setting up so much as a single hair. That's a way, when you have these very fine things that are, could be distinguished, that's a way of saying no gaps, right? Total identification. So, with respect to teaching, the teachings or teachers or teaching, it is said there are four reliances with respect to teaching. So you can try these on. Okay. One is to rely on the truth and not a person. So we frequently say this, the finger pointing at the moon. It's not the teacher, right? It is a pointing and the moon is enlightenment. Right? So don't rely on a person, rely on direct pointing at the truth. The second reliance is to rely on the definitive teaching, which of course Zen likes to think it is, right? Not an incomplete one. <laughs> I think this means not to, st- but whatever you know, school you're in, it means not to stop unfolding the Dharma and not to stop unfolding realization or to depend only on techniques, right? To keep going, to drop all, uh, as it says, you know, drop all views and extinguish all concepts. The third reliance is to rely on meaning and not words, right? That is totally Bodhidharma. And the fourth is to rely on wisdom, not conventional knowledge, right? So, you know, it doesn't matter what you know intellectually, right? This is also something I'm sure you've heard a million times, but to rely on wisdom which arises in Zazen. But I really wanted to stop about this, uh, with this statement of Kazan, speaking with the whole body, speaking with the whole body, of course, without words, or not only with words. You know, for me, this is why we are always on about how to do things, right? How to comport ourselves, all these forms and rules. We are speaking with the whole body all the time, whatever we're engaged with. We are directly expressing without words when we are here in Sashin, or even here when we're not in Sashin, or wherever we are. We can really clearly see how we're speaking with the whole body when we all do things the same way, right? So when you come into the Zendo, there's a form, how to enter the Zendo, how to approach your cushion, Right, how to sit down, how to get up, there are a million details, right? But when you enter those forms, right, n- you know, you realize no one does these things exactly the same way, even though we say we're all doing the same thing. We call it the one-body practice, actually, right? You bow, you offer a ladle full of soup, 
someone responds and everybody fully expresses themselves in that responsiveness, right? So this is why, you know, it's not to not respond. <laughs> you have to respond. It's nothing but response. Each of you, actually, is transmitting and teaching all the time. <laughs> and you imperceptibly, as well as perceptibly, influence each other all the time. So sometimes this comes up in words. Somebody says something, somebody says something else. You know, it flares up, and then we say, oh yeah, I'm influencing you and you're influencing me. But it's in the way you handle things. It's in the way you, you know, wash the dishes or sweep the path or thread a needle or pick up your teacup, right? So this awareness permeates everything. So that's why we say, try to handle your orioki without sound. See how quiet you could be. If you're quiet... It's not about not making noise so much as it is about being completely engaged with things, with two hands, right? Slowing down, giving everything your full attention. You are speaking and teaching with the body. Kazan goes on to say, although we speak of practice, it is not a practice that you can do. That is to say, the body does nothing. The mouth does not recite. The mind doesn't think things over. The six senses are left to their own clarity and unaffected. So then he goes on to list a bunch of things that he says this is not, right? It's not the 16-stage practice of the hearers. This is the path of insight the darshana marga, the path of seeing into the four noble truths at four different levels, right? This is one kind, this is the, some, the first turning of the wheel, the, early, the earliest teachings. Nor, he says, is it the practice of understanding the 12 nidanas of interdependent emergence. This is the 12-fold chain of causation. We sometimes call it that. Um, of those whose practice is founded upon isolation. He's talking about people who practice for their own liberation. Right? And constantly trying to get off this wheel of becoming. Save me from becoming. <laughs> Nor is it the six perfections, which we prize in our practice, right? The six perfections within numberless activities of the bodhisattvas. It's none of those things. Or maybe we could say it's not, uh, its essence isn't in those things as enumerated practices. Why? Because it is without struggle at all. So it is called awakening or enlightenment. Just rest, says Kazan, in the self-enjoyment samadhi of all the Buddhas, wandering playfully, playfully, in the four practices of peace and bliss, of those open to oneness. This is the profound and inconceivable practice of Buddhas and awakened ancestors. So I hope you all noticed the self-receiving and enjoying samadhi in here, right? This is, of course, something we've been chanting frequently and is drawn from Dogen's Fascicle, Dogen's chapter or essay, 
uh, the Bendawa. So Do- Kazan is aligning himself with Dogen here, the lineage founder, using the very same phrase. And these you know, listed practices are pre-Zen. They're not in conflict with it. He's not saying, you know, these are bad, this is wrong. But again, he's emphasizing the direct pointing and experiencing and understanding of Zen. Right? All these other things are not it. They're not thusness. They're not just this. They're not just it. Right? I do want to just mention, in case you're wondering, uh, the last group, this four practices of peace and bliss, right? Um, that we're supposed to wander playfully while enjoying this samadhi of all the Buddhas, right? Um, what are those, you might be wondering? They're a little, uh, they might strike you as a little off, some of them anyway. This is what, how Thomas Cleary, a great scholar and translator, uh, accounts for them. Cleary says, these four practices of peace and bliss refer to blissful and peaceful activities of body, mouth, or word, and mind. Body, speech, and mind, we usually say, right? And of carrying out vows, our Mahayana vows. And Cleary refers for, uh, for a source for these four practices to the Lotus Sutra. How many of you have studied or read any of the Lotus Sutra? A few of you. Yeah, so the Lotus Sutra is very long, <laughs> very important, and kind of controversial in places. Some of, the, some of its teachings are quite challenging. So according to the Lotus Sutra, the blissful and peaceful activities of the body mean not associating with powerful aristocrats. This is going to sound familiar. Um, with sorcerers, with criminals or prostitutes, with butchers, with followers of the vehicles of disciples or self-enlightened ones, desirous thoughts and hermaphrodites. That's what it says. Dangerous censured things or keeping young children as acolytes. Once one avoids these ten kinds of people or actions, one is at ease. So hang on to that, and I'll come back to why he lists all of this. As far as speech is concerned, it means not to indulge in talking about the errors of other people or the scriptures, not to belittle others, not to praise others, not to slander others, and not to be resentful. So basically, shut your mouth. (laughs) Many of the precepts are about speech, you may have noticed. As far as mind is concerned, it means to avoid flattery, depredation, to avoid scorning those of small actions with one's own grandiose actions, and to avoid contention. Carrying out vows in peace and bliss means using the power of one's vow to rescue all one's vow to rescue all beings to govern oneself so this sort of flips our usual understanding right that we vow to save all beings not to save ourselves right and this sort of turns that around it says we are we are using our vow to rescue all beings to govern ourselves it seems or to save ourselves and i think it sounds a little bit inverted But actually, if we do all these things, we both save all beings, 
and we save ourselves at the same time. But let me stop and ask you how you receive <laughs> this teaching from the Lotus Sutra by way of Thomas Cleary and Kazan. How can you save the prostitute if you're not hanging around them? So how do you, yeah, right? How can you, how can you save all beings if you avoid all beings? Or the beings that you think are, what? What are they? Um, Unskillable? Yeah, but, you know, like, it's very easy to, to uh, I mean, this is true of almost all the religions, you know, avoid this, avoid that, don't do this, don't do that, lots of, and, and one way of thinking of it is just avoid the near occasion of sin, right? That's what I grew up with, <laughs> you know. The near occasion. The near occasion of sin, that's an old Catholic thing, right? I didn't understand what that was when I was a kid, but I was told all the time, avoid the near occasion of sin. Um, now I think I know what it means, <laughs> having not avoided some near occasions. Um, but, so in partly it's discipline. It's a good old-fashioned discipline, right? It's also partly to avoid situations where you might be carried off by aristocrats and wealthy people and politicians and, you know, various kinds of uh, situations in which you yourself may be unskillful, mm. right? So easier to be kind of an absolutist while you're training. It's a training, again, like I said the other day. But ultimately, how then do we freely, joyfully, playfully hang out in these four practices? What do you think? You're just not attaching to that. Yeah, you're not trapped by them. So this is a kind of, although we have no stages in practice, it's kind of an advanced practice, right? And, it, and there are times when we pull back from certain situations or people, right, or speech, and we refrain, right? We see it arising and we say, okay, it's not good for me here. I'm going to end this conversation where I'm going to, you know, bow and say thank you very much, <laughs> Or, I'm not going to go to that party. Or, I'm not, right? You know, we do this. Or we go to that party and we don't lose ourselves entirely in that party. We decide when it's time to go home. Or we decide to give somebody a ride. Right? Or to make sure that they're okay. So it's, it's a kind of skillful, constantly, you know, responding to what's in front of you and knowing yourself really well. I think that's where the governing, governing of yourself comes in. Right? But the playful part is important, right? Not to be trapped. How can you be playful? How can you be playful if you're not, right, if you're, if you're getting caught and sort of getting um, influenced and losing, you know, your way in these situations? So I don't think we should take it quite so literally, right? And we should also remember that some of these specific beings, especially, I think, you know, are the parts, there's parts of the Lotus Sutra that are very controversial and, and are, they constantly come up when it's taught by teachers far more, you know, adept than I am. Like, how can we talk this way in the, and accept this kind of teaching in the 21st century in our society, right? And it's a very difficult teaching. So take it in and work with it. Like, you don't necessarily have to 
believe it, or you don't necessarily have to accept that I should avoid these kinds of people or reject these kinds of people. And I don't even think it's saying that exactly. But if it's hard to hear some of these words, realize you know they have a context. And they are words. They're just words. We are the ones who make up distinctions and categories. Our minds do this. Right? In reality, there are no differences. I also want to say, you know, we've been chanting, the, not at home, you won't have done this, but that we've been chanting the Shin Shin Ming at, at uh, lunch at, for the noon service. And our uh, third ancestor of Zen, who's you know, much closer to Bodhidharma than these uh, Japanese and later Chinese ancestors are, this is Kanchi Sosan, whom we chant in our list of Buddhas and ancestors. He wrote the Shin Shin Ming, and he says, wander at ease without vexation. Right? I think that's the same kind of right, feeling. Like, wherever you go, be without vexation, be without judgment, right? don't lose your way. So discipline is usually understood as ceasing wrong action and eliminating evil, says Kazan. Right? But he says, in Zazen, the whole thing is known to be non-dual, right? not div- undivided, we could say. Cast off the numberless concerns and rest free, right? Free, free, free. Rest free from entangling yourself in the Buddhist way or the worldly way, right? Don't get caught by anything. Leave behind feelings about the path as well as your usual sentiments, When you leave behind all opposites, what can obstruct you? This is the formless discipline of the ground of mind, which is another way of saying your original nature, Buddha nature. That's where he winds up after this long disquisition on what, apparently, what not to do. He goes on, practice usually means unbroken concentration. Zazen is dropping the body-mind, leaving behind confusion and understanding. Both, right? Confusion and understanding. He says, unshakable, without activity, it is not diluted, but still, like an idiot, (laughs) like a fool, which is a way of saying simple, (laughs) like a mountain, like the ocean, without any trace of motion, or stillness. This practice is no practice because it has no object to practice and so is called great practice. I'll say that again. This practice is no practice because it has no object. So there's no division between the person practicing and the thing that's practiced. There are no two entities. So it is called the great practice. Wisdom, says Kazan, is usually understood to be clear discernment. In Zazen, all knowledge vanishes of itself. Mind and discrimination are forgotten forever in the present moment. (laughs) That's forever. The wisdom eye of this body has no discrimination, but is clear seeing of the essence of awakening. From the beginning, it is free of confusion, cuts off concept, An open and clear luminosity pervades everywhere. This wisdom is no wisdom, right? (laughs) Because it is traceless wisdom. It 
leaves no trace. Right? It's totally integrated. Therefore, it is called great wisdom. And the teaching, he says, that the Buddhas have presented all throughout their lifetimes are just this, discipline, practice, and wisdom. In Zazen, there is no discipline that is not maintained, no practice that is uncultivated, no wisdom that is unrealized. So he's returned to where we started today with this notion of Zazen contains everything, right? Zazen is everything. There's nothing that's outside of it and nothing that it depends on. Conquering the demons of confusion, attaining the way, turning the wheel of the Dharma and returning to tracelessness all arise from the power of this. Siddhis, S-I-D-D-H-I, Siddhis and inconceivable activities emanating luminosity and proclaiming the teachings, all of this are present in this Zazen. Penetrating Zen is Zazen. Um, and I, I said I was going to return to uh, Bodhidharma, and this is another quote from his um, bloodstream sermon, the so-called bloodstream sermon. Right. This is what he says, which is quite similar, I think. He says, The mind is the Buddha, and the Buddha is the mind. Beyond the mind, there's no Buddha, and beyond the Buddha, there's no mind. <laughs> If you think there's a Buddha beyond the mind, where is he? There's no Buddha beyond the mind, so why envision one? You can't know your real mind as long as you deceive yourself. Here it is. If you're enthralled, as long as you're enthralled by a lifeless form, you're not free. If you don't believe me, deceiving yourself won't help. It's not the Buddha's fault. People, though, are deluded. (laughs) They're unaware that their own mind is the Buddha. Otherwise, they wouldn't look for a Buddha outside the mind. And then this is the money quote. Buddhas don't save Buddhas. If you use your mind to look for a Buddha, you won't see the Buddha. As long as you look for a Buddha somewhere else, you'll never see that your own mind is the Buddha. Don't use a Buddha to worship a Buddha. And don't use the mind to invoke a Buddha. Buddhas don't recite sutras. Buddhas don't keep precepts. And Buddhas don't break precepts. Buddhas don't keep or break anything. Buddhas don't do good or evil. And he goes on. Um, He says, uh, one more sentence. He says, if you don't see your nature, right, your, your, your true nature... He says, invoking Buddhas, reciting sutras, making offerings, and keeping precepts are all useless. Ouch. (laughs) Invoking Buddhas, he says, results in good karma. Reciting sutras results in a good memory. (laughs) Keeping precepts results in a good birth, and making offerings results in future blessings. But no Buddha. Bodhidharma was a tough one. <laughs> yeah. So this is all the essential teaching of Zen. Okay, we have a few more practice instructions to, to get through before I quit. He says, to practice sitting, Kazan, 
find a quiet place, lay down a thick mat. This sounds a whole lot like uh, Dogen and like what he's said already. He says, don't let wind, smoke, rain, or dew come in. Keep a clear space with enough room for your knees. Although in ancient times there were those who sat on diamond seats or large stones for their cushions. The place where you sit should not be too bright in the daytime or too dark at night. It should be warm in winter and cool in summer. That's the key. Drop mind, intellect, and consciousness. Leave memory, thinking, and observing alone. Right? Leave them alone is like, you know, don't get rid of them. Just let them be. He says, don't try to fabricate Buddha. Don't try to make yourself into anything. Don't be concerned with how well or how poorly you think you are doing. Just understand that time is as precious as if you were putting out a fire in your hair. Right? The Buddha sat straight, Bodhidharma faced the wall. Both were wholehearted and committed. Shishuang was like a gnarled dead tree. Dru Jing, that's Dogen's teacher, warned against sleepy sitting and said, just sitting, just sitting, shikantaza, is all you need. You don't need to make burning incense offerings, meditate upon the names of Buddhas, repent, study the scriptures, or do recitation rituals. Right? This is like recurring now, right? You're hearing it over and over again. This is exactly what Dogen teaches in Fukan Zazengi and Bendawa. I think it's especially important, this line, don't be concerned with how well or how poorly you are doing. Right? Because one moment of zazen, even one moment that you may not even be aware of, is everything. Um, he says, when you sit, wear the kesa, right? except in the first and last parts of the night when the daily schedule is not effect, in effect. So if you're wondering why we put our rakasu on, Right after and do the robe chant. Right after we've already sat two periods. It's, this is why Kazan's regulations. There's a whole thing about whether lay people can wear the full okesa, which in our time is reserved for priests. Some lineages now are having people sew full okesa even without being ordained as priests. But I want you to know, all of you who are wearing, you know, the rakasu, it is just a small version of the okesa. Right, it's a convenient version of the okesa. And, and so anyone can do that. Right? All you have to do is ask. The kesa is the Buddha's robe, right? And the other thing is, you know, we say for, far beyond form and emptiness, right? The formless field, right? You're wearing the okesa even when you're not wearing the okesa because the okesa is just the teachings, the teaching of reality. So when you are in reality, you're wearing the okesa. Kazan says, don't be careless. The cushion should be about 12 inches thick <laughs> and 36 in circumference. He actually tells you how big it should be. Don't put it under the thighs, but only from mid-thigh to the base of the spine. So now he's getting down to these you know, really specific kinds of advice about how to be comfortable. He tell, gives the same advice about full lotus, half lotus, just like uh, Dogen. He says, loosen your robes, but keep them in order. Put your right hand on your left heel and your left hand on top of your right. This, of course, is if you're sitting in full lotus or half lotus. He says, sit straight without leaning to the left or the right, front or back. Ears, shoulders, nose, and navel should be aligned. Anybody can do that, whether you're sitting in a chair or a bench um, or some other way. Place the tongue on the palate and breathe through the nose. 
Um, that's a very specific instruction, which is really helpful if you don't do that. Try it, putting your tongue on the roof of your mouth. The mouth should be closed. The eyes should be open, but not too wide, nor too, nor too slight. Harmonizing the body in this way. Breathe deeply with the mouth once or twice, the instructions that we heard two days ago. Right, so... Not like in a yoga class, no, that, ah, <laughs> just, just a couple of breaths, and then you can close your mouth and start breathing through your nose. And he says, sitting steadily, sway the torso seven or eight times and decreasing movements, like a pendulum, come to rest. Sit straight and alert. And then from here, he goes into the famous think of not thinking, or as one translation has it, think the unthinkable. Right? Or, another translation, think of what doesn't think. And I'll save that for the next talk. <laughs> right. um, before we end, um, I want to share just two more quotes that are not any of the things that we've been engaged with today. Um, this is a, a quote from um, Shota Harada Roshi, a contemporary uh, 20th century Zen teacher. Um, he says, people are constantly in a state of desire and that makes us confused and unclear. Even recognizing our foolishness and vowing to help each other won't resolve everything. He says, the clear, bright essence of mind has to be awakened to. You only have one life. Don't waste it. It's not about being praised and complimented, but about realizing how joyful you can be, that you have been born. Let go of your small self and know that you are the life energy. You are the life energy of all people. Not a small isolated piece of living matter. You illuminate the whole globe, as does everything that is alive. The Buddha said that the most important precept, and it's also the first paramita, the first perfection, is giving, to humbly offer and to humbly share. Harada Roshi says, infinite love is born from seeing how to provide what people really need, because we know they are our own self. This is not something we learn through our practice. We have it from the beginning. We only have to awaken to it. And that's from his book, Not One Single Thing, which I recommend. Um, and the other quote, uh, and I'm quoting these things in part from things I'm hearing when people come and talk to me, so hoping this illuminates things for some of you. This is um, from Zen master Basso, or Matsu, as he's known in Chinese. He says, no sentient being has for untold eons ever left the samadhi of, of Dharma nature. <laughs> Nobody has ever left the samadhi of Dharma nature. You've always been in this self-receiving and employing samadhi. Basso said, since we are always in the samadhi of Dharma nature, we wear clothes and we eat food. We converse and we make respectful replies. 
for the functioning of the six sense organs and the carrying out of all activities are without exception nothing but dharma nature. <laughs> and um, this is a, a comment on that, uh, not my comment. Hearing what he is saying, I think this is Harada Roshi actually, again. Hearing what he is saying, do not take it to mean that sentient beings have an existence within Dharma nature, right? It's not this thing called Dharma nature and everybody's like fish in a little fishbowl swimming around in it, right? Instead, to distinguish between Dharma nature and sentient beings is like distinguishing between water and waves. We use the words water and waves in our speech, but really, what difference is there between the two? Thank you very much. Are there any? Is there anything to share? Would you like to share, comment, or bring up? One thing comes to mind. Yeah. A lot of these teachings have things like, you know, "Do not do this. Do not do that. Don't go." It's the list of people. Stay away from politicians and such. My mother said politicians are all prostitutes. That's what she said. So you have two birds with one stone. Avoid being ready. It's like it seems like it's a, a strong prohibition, which yeah, it occurs to me. It's, it's almost like something that if you keep hearing these things, you'd have an aversion to it. Yes. Which is like you know, it's like the flip side of what you're trying to avoid. Yeah. Um, Curious if some of the language where it's like, don't do this, is put out there just because they had to be a little bit more firm instead of just saying, don't get attached to it. You can still do it, but don't get attached, then people would still get in trouble. So it had to be more of like, don't do it. I think that's, yeah, I think that is partly the case that, uh, you know, it's why they also say, if you think you've understood all the sutras and all the teachings, don't believe it, you know. Um, because you might then say, well, I think I understand, so I'm going to go down into, you know, uh, whatever, you know, terrible dive where all these politicians and evil people are consorting, and I'm going to, you know, be fine, right? <laughs> I'm a bodhisattva, I've got my okesa on, my invisible okesa, and I'm cool, <laughs> right? Nothing's going to happen. Um, but, you know, we also have stories of, of Zen masters who did outrageous things, in the, I mean, in the past, who hung out with kids and prostitutes and got drunk and, and were, on some level, not breaking the precepts, right? They were mm, unattached, but they, these people are few, right? And we think, oh, that's Zen, right? To be able to behave in any way you want and say it's all practice, right? It's all, or it's all an expression of my freedom. And in the meantime, real harm can be done, right? Or people can be led astray in thinking... Oh yeah, sure, it's fine if you, you know, do this or do that. So, yeah, don't be fooled by anybody, including yourself, <laughs> right? And try to follow the instructions as, as best you can. But, you know, every, every era has got its group of people or type of person that should be avoided, right? That has some kind of unhealthy fascination for us, whatever that is, right? And, you know, human beings are capable of... Each of us, as a human being, is capable of anything. We don't like to think that, but it's why, you know, there's genocide and wars and cruelty of all kinds. Right? You say, oh, that happened there. 
or that happened in the past. You know, I would never do that. It's, we all have the capacity for the most amazing Buddha activity and, you know, the worst things that people can do. So why head in that direction when you can head in this direction? Let things be as they are tending to be, which is you found this path in this lifetime. Right? Don't waste this life. Don't waste this life. Yeah. Curious what oh, sorry. I'm curious on what the updated list of people to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on who you are and where you, you know, where you are. Yeah, but I mean, since it does depend on circumstances, then maybe we should suspend our judgment or try, <laughs> try, mm. try. I mean, everyone is acting out of their either their enlightenment or their ignorance or both. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, Sandra first, yeah. It seems different from other religious traditions that um, encourage everyone to go and feed the poor. And, um, you know, I know in Buddhism there are some prison ministries and mm-hmm. that sort of thing, but um, so I guess that's why sometimes Zen gets this. Um, impression that it's kind of not compassionate mm-hmm. and even though you know I, I understand that non-separation is where the compassion arises but um, why do you think that is that it, it, it almost seems um, isolating you know to stay away from these people rather than go out and see if there's some service you can do for people who may benefit, like helping people with AIDS or addicts or, you know. This is a, a question that's, you know, it's, a, it's sort of a big question. I think partly Buddhism's roots were in solitary, celibate, monastic practice or wandering mendicants, you know, who were, mm-hmm. had virtually nothing. You know, and the ideal is, you know, one robe, one bowl, a needle and thread to fix your robe and you rely on others for your food and you live totally simply, peacefully, practicing for your own liberation and the people who feed you and maybe give you shelter or whatever are achieving merit by doing that, right? Um, so that's, that's the origin of our... I mean, the Buddha left everything behind. He didn't go back then and use his great wealth to, like, you know, fix everything in his kingdom. He... He went and taught. He thought this was the best thing he'd do to help other people. So that's the roots of it, I think, are partly where it comes from. But, you know, this was a great controversy a generation ago about so-called, you know, socially engaged Buddhism, right? Is that in co- somehow in contradiction to our teaching or our practice where we do seem to be like, you know, what good are you doing facing the wall, right, and not doing anything? Um, and so there, there are, you know, Buddhist associations and groups and sanghas and temples who are, who do go and, you know, San Francisco Zen Center, before the pandemic anyway, you know, made sandwiches and went out and found people who, had, who were on the streets and offered them food. There was a Zen hospice for AIDS when AIDS hit San Francisco really hard and people went there to die, to be taken care of until they died. Many, many, many uh, priests I know are training as chaplains, as hospice chaplains in particular. 
and various of us have gone into prisons and write to prisoners. And so I think it's not that we don't care, you know. Part well, of it do you is, think some of that is the influence of, of religious traditions on Buddhism in the United States? I think it's, it's an unfolding of the Dharma that we, rather than, I mean, we ask for our members and our supporters to support us, and then we find ways to turn that wheel, right? Mm-hmm. So we offer the teachings, and then we sometimes do other things that as we have the time and the effort, you know, the inclination to do them. You know, I spent 15 years going into prisons, and I'm not doing it now in part because I've got too much to do here. Um, but also, I started writing prisoners, and if in the federal system, you can't write to federal prisoners and visit federal prisons. So I've decided to write to people instead of go and visit. That's just my particular circumstances, you know. I mean, there is there are interfaith organizations here in Austin, and we have been more or less engaged with them at, at different times. Recently, not so much. Yeah, but it's a good question, and the, and it's also a question of what can we offer that really helps. So sometimes you just respond. Someone's hungry, and you feed them, right? Somebody's dying, and you stay with them. You visit them, you know. Someone um, is sick and you visit them and you offer whatever you can offer. Uh, and other times you're more organized. <laughs> you get out there. I don't think it's in conflict. This kind of activity, compassionate activity, isn't any kind of conflict with the teachings as we have them. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Drew, and then I, Ruby, I haven't forgotten you. Sure. Uh, it's interesting. Um, someone once asked Suzuki Roshi why they were sitting at a one-day retreat instead of going to an anti-war march that was happening on the same day. And there was a, some back and forth, and his, his response was, uh, how are you supposed to stop the war if you don't even know how to tie your shoes? <laughs> it was like, yeah. So it yeah. seems like it's pointing at, like, with my Oriyoki set there, I can't even sometimes handle a spoon without being impatient or tense and it's like yeah if I can't handle a spoon how can I learn to get involved in these very difficult questions it's it's a question of skillfulness how to be skillful right there's a lot of talk about just knowing what to do right in a kind of immediate like understanding of what to do because as Harada says you know that, that, that person you know what that person needs because they are your own self. That kind of intuitive, non-discursive, non-thinking, what do I do? Do I help? Do I not help? Do I walk by? Do I give this person on the street five bucks, you know, because they're asking? You just act skillfully. That that's takes practice. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, there's another story which I think I I told a couple of days ago about Suzuki Roshi being asked a similar question, what good are we doing in here, you know? that he got up off his platform and hit, there are two stories, hit the person, <laughs> and the other story is he hit the person next to the person who asked the question. <laughs> and I think that second one, which is my preferred version, is like, you know, it's like there's really no difference between you sitting here and working on yourself and doing something else that you think is helping, right? So it's sort of the same answer in a way. 
He had, there are stories like that. How can you do X, Y, or Z when you don't even know how to eat your lunch? There was actually a story about school kids that he went to visit, and they were like totally out of control, you know. And by the time he was done with his visit with them, they were all like taking their trash and putting it away and cleaning their classroom. (laughs) (laughs) Vintage Suzuki Roshi. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Rudy. My, my, I guess, comment was like three stops before this in the conversation. Sorry, but go ahead and back to it if you can remember. well, I guess just when we were talking about like going to various places and getting entangled and what it means to get entangled and the strong prohibitions you find in older texts, I guess I was just thinking about how from more contemporary teachers, uh, like talking about this in practice, but it also applies to, to just the rest of life, uh, about returning. Mm-hmm. That you're, not, you're, ne- you're never just in that, that this this. this perfect Buddha path that you're following all the time, but you're just always coming back to it. You're always straying from it and always coming back to it. Yeah. That's all I to say. Yeah. I mean, continuity in various, various forms is highly prized. Continuity of concentration, continuity of effort, right? Continuous practice is the circle of the way, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's one way of saying, you know, anything that we do is practice, right? But yeah, it's like when we're sitting and we suddenly think, oh, I've wandered way far afield, my hands have collapsed in my lap and I'm leaning to one side, and, right? And we, just, we return to base, you know? It's like we come back to the base and we plug back in, right? And it may, it may be like, you know, you have an interaction with someone that you're trying to help and it goes completely sideways, right? And we just try again. Where, where did I go wrong? <laughs> just, or like, oh, that wasn't actually about me, right? It's just, that's not what that person really needed. Or it was, but they couldn't accept it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Yeah. Jose, I thought I saw you waving. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for the talk. Um, uh, and uh, uh, you brought up a point which is also related to the discussion we've been having. Uh, about um, uh, trying to save yourself by saving others uh, and uh, reminds me of uh, some researchers I know who claim that there's no such thing as real altruism because ultimately it's always self-serving and uh, fed through through the ego of being seen by others as being that person that helps others and therefore elevates you in society. Um, uh, And so... uh, so of course it's a you know back and forth uh, as you can imagine, but uh, but I, I can't even remember uh, the way you expressed it. Uh, but there's another way of seeing this perspective of saving others, and that's not by saving yourself, but uh, by actually limiting or helping yourself uh, or restraining yourself. Uh, and so I was hoping you could speak a little bit more to this uh, you know awareness of how one's own ego plays into uh, saving others and how to watch out for it. Gigantic question. Um, <laughs> by the way, it's like the, you know, they, there's this you know, there's this phrase of like, some people say or uh, you know, words like that, and I was like, who are these researchers who are always overturning our paradigm? <laughs> some people. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, from a point of view of Dharma teachings, I, I quote her often in this. Um, uh, Joan Halifax has a whole book about, you know, this kind of question, really. So she makes a distinction between helping and serving. 
right? Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, helping may be thinking, I'm doing this for you, and I'm going to, I am helping you, right? And there's this, there's this triple, you know, subject-object thing going on. There's me, there's what I think is help, and then there's you. And that's the kind of altruism, I think, that is more egoistic, right? And it's like the Pharisees in the Bible, you know, look at me, I'm so holy, and I'm, you know, keeping all the laws, and I'm all the dietary restrictions, and I'm in the temple every day, and, you know, I'm virtuous. Me, 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 right? But her, her greatest good is how, am I, how can I serve, which is just a way to take the eye out. Knowing how to do that is difficult, right? How do I serve this person? But, it, but it's less about what I think about what I'm doing, right? And that, I'm not sure if your researchers capture, <laughs> capture that. But it is a kind of thing, you know, also to see, to really see another person as a mirror of yourself. Even a person you think is so completely not you from all of the outside appearances. They're not you because they're old, or they're not you because they're young, or they're not you because they have a different sexual orientation or a different political set of political beliefs, right? Or they're sick and we have aversion, right? Oh, God, not this, you know? Or they're dead, <laughs> right? How many of you have ever been with a dead person? Yeah. Right? It's a, it's something, you know? It's something. And it's a little terrifying. <laughs> it can be a little terrifying. Um, right? But, but our suffering comes from, that's not me. Right? That's not me. So I think the Buddhist contribution to this whole question is, if I see that person, as Harada says, as Basu says, Matsu Basu says, as nothing other than myself, right? What I is there doing anything for somebody else, right? So the researchers can say altruism is about status seeking, right? And the Buddhists can say, what status? Who's seeking, <laughs> right? <laughs> they see what they want to see because they have to write papers and get published. <laughs> I read an article that um, had a poly translation of compassion. Mm. And the words somewhere in there translated, it was sort of in between compassion and empathy, and it meant to tremble with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really, that's really what you're after, you know, is to yeah, the trembling. be with the person, to be one with the person. Yeah, I think that's very good. It's, uh, and, and there's a, there is a Zen teacher somewhere who uses that trembling mm-hmm. um, that, you know, to really see beings is to tremble with them because we're all, you know, we're all dewdrops on the edge of a, on a leaf ready to drop into the abyss. Everything, right, is like that. So, you know, we tremble with other beings because we are vulnerable and impermanent and, but there's, it's not necessary to have the fear arise at the same time. It's like, go there. Yeah. Um, I just remembered that the third, the third state of uh, Joan Halifax, there's fixing, helping, and serving. Fixing is the worst, <laughs> right? In this hierarchy of unskilled, it's like, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to fix you, I'm going to cure you, I'm going to make you different, everything's going to be cool, you know, we'll be good, right? And then there's helping, which sounds like altruism, but there's some ego attached to it. And then there's serving, where the ego, the I part, is withdrawn. Ideally. Thank you all very much.